Thanks for listening to the Drummer's Weekly Groovecast. You can contact the show at twitter.com forward slash dwgroovecast and through Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Drummer's Weekly Groovecast. Good evening. I am warning you right now, if you touch my drums, I will stab you in the neck with a knife. Ain't a fucking. Ain't a fucking. Mom! Lower it. I'm not going to lower it. I have to do this now. I don't mind you playing it, but lower it. Are we going to straighten out? No, we had a problem. I mean, uh, we tried to do everything we could. What do you mean? Well, you know what I mean. Nice. Little trouble there. You're rushing. Yeah, well, you know, that's just like uh, your opinion, man. Yeah. Hey, buddy. What's up? Oh, not much, man. We're just here congregating on another Monday, in air quotes. Monday. Yeah, that, that that's what it is. It's Monday. How's your winter life going? Uh, it's been so bipolar. I don't know if I have a winter <laughs> life. Like uh, one or two days out of the week, I have a winter life. Well, some, And then I'll have a spring life. Some people, though, would equate that to being... Uh, the drummer's vacation month or the musician's vacation month. Yeah, but I, I'm definitely on vacation. Uh, you're making some hay, though, man. I know what's going on with you. Yeah, you know, I, I was prepared. I'm like a farmer, man. You got to it, it's ye, put aside for the John's ye old swapping shop. <laughs> Been plenty of that, no doubt. No, I know what's going on, man. You got some good stuff happening over there. And Per our usual, our fan base loves to hear gear talk. Gear, 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 gear. Yeah, uh, had some cool stuff come through, and some really amazing, serendipitous and spiritual kind of stuff too. Um, there's a young man who passed away. Was had he grew up here in Atlanta. He'd been in Nashville. Um, named Christian Leonard. He was only 24 when he passed away and that was back in July of last year but his mom asked me to sell his stuff and that was you know it was difficult for sure but um wanted to help and he had a really nice he had some really nice gear and uh another friend of ours who has a podcast had talked about him mm -hmm. uh after his passing and someone shared that with his mom and she had mentioned it to me and then sure enough, he bought the drums. So she was just beside herself with glee that that uh, ended up happening. Someone she knows, knows what the gear is and knew who her son was and, and all that and ended up getting it. And that was a, that was a real cool, you know, I buy and sell a lot where it's just blind. It's, it is what it is, you know, someone has a, something, I get it, I sell it to someone, whatever, but every once in a while something cool happens. So then another one, uh, a friend of mine's mother-in-law passed away and there was this beautiful Ludwig kit in her basement and, and he was gonna be like, yeah, we're putting it in the estate sale. I'm like, no, don't do that. Yeah. You know, someone will end up getting it for 500 bucks. So I grabbed that and detailed it and all that. And then one of our friends and power listeners as you call him dave johnstone bought it so there's a real cool uh connection there so sometimes when you're wheeling and dealing you know you end up having some nice little uh stories that come out of it well i want to make sure also that you get a mention in on a little gretch kit that you scored something you've been looking for for a little while oh yeah yeah um i got a usa custom burnt orange which is a Amazing finish. Twenty two twelve sixteen, right in my wheelhouse. Our buddy uh Paul Cooper seems to post uh quite a few pictures of a burnt orange kit that he's got as well, man. That's very cool. He has three of them. <laughs> multi tommed, multi bass drum size burnt orange kits. Yeah, but those are all Slingerland kits. Stop it. 
<laughs> no, th those those are cool, some very cool stories, man. Those those can end up. You can check the box over the column of things work out correctly in the end. Yeah, for all those. There is, man, and and I, I will say this. I know we all dabble in gear and buying and flipping, and sometimes we'll buy something to facilitate another, you know, and sell it and make a profit and all that. And man, there's a lot of real shysters out there doing this stuff and i've always kind of taken the different path like be real honest and take care of people and give some good price and all that and man that that'll come back i've literally had i had a drum set given to me the other day i know and it and it turned out to be something that is not only just a cool thing to have, but I mean, it's useful and sounds good. It's something you can actually work yeah, with. Yeah. So, and it wasn't something I'd be like, oh, I'll flip it. You know? Right. So it, the best of both worlds is it was, it was given to me by a, a very generous soul and it's, and I can use it and I, I have no intention of getting rid of that. And, you know, I always, I've, I'll tell anyone who listens, you know, you can't get sentimental when you're flipping gear and I don't get attached to anything, as you know. Oh, yeah. Everything's for sale. Mm -hmm. But I'm right now. I'm kind of. I think I'm two kits in where I don't really think I can do that. So well, maybe I got some lifelong kits finally in my. I'm going to be the mix. first one to say you need to hang on to that burnt orange kit because it is. It's something that you and I have been talking about for years. Yeah. You know, something that you wanted to get your hands on, something that you could just have it and just be like, "This is the one that I'm using." Yeah. So. That's been that. That was a nice, and and I had a dear friend of mine give me an amazing deal on it. So there's some real emotional attachment to it too. That that's awesome, man. And while we're sitting here talking about the honesty of like your business acumen, it, it leads in directly to what our topic's going to be today as well. Sure does. Because one of the running themes when we talk about business is truthfulness and honesty. My gosh, man, you've got to have that in spades if you're going to sleep at night, you know. Now, one other thing I want to talk about before we dig into this topic is we lost uh, another legend, or at least a local legend of drumming. Um, the drummer Billy Dennett passed away recently. He's a guy that made some hay in Atlanta for quite a while. Legendary guy. Quite an educator as well. Reputation of gold. Mm -hmm. um, got a couple sons that are quite talented. Yes, sir. And he also has uh, a wife who's done a lot of good in the musician circles by being a competent CPA. Mm -hmm. So a, a, a family that was certainly embraced and celebrated by the Atlanta musicians community and, and Billy is uh, someone that I've never heard anyone say a bad word about. That is exactly true. Just, just kind as can be and, and, a, and a fine player too. So it's like, you, you know, you can't really, can't really beat that. But unfortunately uh, he's passed on. Yeah. And we have condolences to the family and, you know, lift up those sons who are, deep in the scene too so certainly and also just condolences to a lot of folks in the music community that used to play with him regularly as well yep yeah all right folks so we'll go ahead and start digging into the topic for the day um as we mentioned before this is a a, a topic that deals on the business side of the music business something that you got to be well versed in the further you get into this or you're just going to be living a life of misery so when it comes to contracting and booking gigs, the thing that I can tell you that's kind of our overriding theme on this is, of course, you want to be absolutely honest and truthful with everyone that you're dealing with, whether it's the client that you're booking this gig from or the musicians that you are contracting to play said gig. Because one of the reasons that I started doing it, and I don't do it a whole lot, but one of the reasons that I've taken the responsibility of that is that I've been on enough gigs, tours, sessions, whatever, that you learn what you, of course, want to have at a gig, but even more importantly, you learn how not to do things and how you don't want to be treated mm -hmm. on gigs. And so 
I thought what we would do today is we would talk about, of course, why you want to contract and book gigs, but also the things that you need to know and the things that you need to ask for because there are so many little details and so much minutiae that's involved when you are booking these different things that if you let these little little details slide at the beginning, they end up being a big stressor by the time you get to the gig. And so you just want to make sure you have your I's dotted and your T's crossed when you're dealing with legal documents. Well, and you know, one other thing I want to mention about that is when you do end up working for some type of a leader or a contractor that does the right things and has all of the details worked out ahead of time, that really makes you appreciate the amount of work and effort that goes into contracting these gigs and making sure that you that you really do the right thing. Right. Because there's, there's a lot of work, man, that goes between emails and phone calls and text messages and dealing with all the people when you're there's a lot of moving parts when it comes to any gig. So, John, the first thing I want to talk about is why would you ever want to contract a gig? And obvious thing is, is you make a little extra money. You do that. Yeah. Uh, sometimes I don't know if it's worth it, but other times it may well be. I've kind of come to the conclusion that if you do it long enough, you end up you end up getting to the point to where for every two or three gigs that you make an extra $50 you will get the one larger gig where you can make a few extra hundred bucks on Good top attitude. of something. So you, you, it, it will work out in the wash along the way. The other thing that I like to say is that when you contract a gig, you always work with your friends. Or at least 95% of the time you do that because I love the opportunity to hire the people that I want to work with. Fantastic. Absolutely, because I mean, not only is it going to be somebody that you enjoy playing with from a musical standpoint, 90% of the time it's going to be some people that you like and you get along with. Just hanging out. Absolutely. And a big part of the gig is hanging out. So It is. If you've ever, if you've ever been a part of a group that you work with, especially any kind of road work for any length of time, and it's people that you just don't enjoy being around, mm. man, it is, it's not a lot of fun. No. It's not a lot of fun. Avoid it. And then another kind of an ancillary reason is it gives you an understanding of how the music business works and just how the business side of the music business works. Mm -hmm. And boy, the more understanding that you can have about how this stuff works and the appreciation that you can get from like, wow, man, I, I contracted this gig from the end, from the beginning all the way to the end you can see the natural curve and flow of how something like this originates to how it finishes up mm -hmm. because when you book a gig the easiest part of the gig is the time that you're playing no doubt you know another part another thing too that is it can be really good about it is it can give you some perspective that sometimes you're not going to get if you're just a hired player like, you know, maybe you realize like this client mindset or this person who's booking this event for their company and the pressures on them or the, you know, the, the mother of the bride, whatever it may be, you know, sometimes you're going to get a different perspective and that, and that's good to know. You might not even agree with it. You might not, you might think it's dumb. You might think it's dramatic, whatever, but just you're learning about where people's heads are that aren't in your position that have responsibilities. You don't. And more importantly, how to navigate through that. You know, if you're just running blind and this person's stressed out and you don't know why, you know, that makes things a lot more difficult. Yeah. And, and to your point, you can talk with a prospective client, that will make a point that it's very important when they saw, say, your demo video, that it was very important that, hey, we really like the way that you set up for that video and the way that this thing was shot. We like the way that it looked. And that could just be one of those things that was a throwaway for you when right. you were doing it. 
Right. And so you kind of learn that there are certain things that people like and that will book you and find it way more important than you ever thought was going to be. Mm-hmm. Now, John, I thought that before we get into these different things that you ask for and the, the, the minutia of contracts and things that make your life easier is that there are a few things I think it's important for everybody that you need to know going into this thing that you may not be completely aware of until you start booking gigs. And so I thought I'd throw a couple things out there is that first, you have to realize that you are technically going into a sales position. And any good salesperson is going to tell you that no matter how good your sales chops are and no matter how good your band is and how personable you might be, you're not going to book every gig. Because a lot of times it doesn't come down to how wonderful you are or even your price point. It's like you just mentioned, man. Somebody might see a video of a band and they might just go, man, I really like the way these guys look. Man, I really like the way they perform this genre of music. And if you just don't have it, you're not going to sell the band no matter what, even if you undercut somebody by a thousand bucks. No, if they want what they want. Absolutely. Now, another thing is this. If you're an advertiser, and let's say that you've put a group on one of these, we'll call it like a musical selling aggregate site, something like a Gig Masters or a Gig Salad, something of that ilk. Something that I've learned is if you get a call or an email from somebody, you better get on it. Because something, whether you consider it good or bad or indifferent, something that happens all the time is when somebody, a corporation, a private client is looking to book a gig or looking to book a band, they use the shotgun blast formula of of booking, which essentially means they will send out a request to 15 different groups Mm -hmm. all at the same time. And unfortunately, a lot of times, if you are the last one, or fortunately, unfortunately, if you're the first or last, if you're the first one, you've got a leg up on everybody. And if you're coming in two days later, there's probably a pretty good chance that somebody's already got that gig booked. Or your attitude might be perceived as less than slacker yeah competent or you know like you don't care so that that can you know like showing the initiative to respond is is putting you in a better position for sure 100 percent. and when you're at that point of responding to someone you better a be ready to answer every question that they got in other words if you just hang a shingle out there and you have no idea what's going on if people ask you about prices and can you do this and can you do that if you don't have answers for that if you have to always go back to them of like well i you know what i don't know and i don't know about this and i don't know if we can do that again that's not a good thing you better have some answers ready for some folks and likewise be ready to ask your own questions which is what we're going to get to in just a few minutes because being able to to just flat out ask some people and let them know Hey, look, you got some responsibilities also. We've got to figure some things out before I can give you a, an honest <laughs> quote on something. Mm-hmm. Because naturally, the, one of the next points we want to talk about is you've got to be honest and you've got to be truthful about every aspect of this contract and about every aspect of this gig. Not only honesty and price and whatnot, but you can't have a jazz piano trio booked on a gig where somebody goes now this piano trio they can like break into van halen and motley crew right <laughs> if need be no problem dude how, who am i yeah yeah no problem ex- exactly you're, you're half of every booking agent is what you are right horrible. now. horrible because i know and that agent's not going to be around right you're the one with your pants around your ankles exactly you're the ones that show up to the gig you're the you're the day of contact point point of contact oftentimes unaware Totally. And the, only, and the only thing you can do is just basically at that time kind of grin and bear it or try to do something like that. And then one of the last things I want to say, because now we're going to start talking about what it actually takes to book a gig, is that when you make these initial contacts and when you're trying to book something, it is very, very, very important that you realize when you go into these things that when you start budgeting for a gig, 
you always need to have a little bit of extra money no matter how badly you want to book this gig to try to undercut something or try to cut as many quarters as possible you've always got to have a little bit of extra money reserved on top of what you would like that gig to be because not all players are paid the same some people might bring PA some people might bring lighting you might have a last-minute thing that you have to do involving insurance or something, which we're going to talk about again coming into it. But I always like to say that's one of the most important things when you get ready to book a gig. Do not cut it so close that every single dime of this gig is accounted for prior to booking it. That's a knowing glance you just gave me, John. That it was. Let's talk about things that you need to ask for. Okay. Now, when you get ready to book a gig, one of the first things that people want to know is what does it cost for your band? Well, I, what does this gig entail? That's the first thing you got to <laughs> find you, out. There you go. Because it's it's kind it of cost thirty five hundred dollars. Oh, great. Well, you know that's amazing because it's in Detroit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And you guys got your flights covered, right? I would have to say that more than half the inquiries that I get, there's no information or there's very little information about what is what the client wants and mm -hmm. the details of the gig. And the question is, what does it cost f to have your band play this event? And what's the first thing you ask? It's not even a first thing. It's almost like a first series of questions. Yeah, I, I, I you know, I it is, and and that's kind of where where we're getting at right now. Let me go ahead and throw one thing out. Okay, is after you have at least given them a series of questions and have gotten back some answers. Okay, and you're at least in the ballpark of like, okay, I can at least give them an opening bid. Right. Right. The one thing that I would tell you, that I would tell everybody who's listening to this show, you can always come down in price, but you can never go up in price. No way. You are so correct. So what I'm getting at is this. If you get to a point and all of a sudden you know that you can book this quartet for $3,000 and you're going to be okay, you better not start there. You better be up a little bit, okay? Because you can always bargain a little bit, but you can't bargain your way back up. That's what I'm trying to say. One thing about price is when you start putting this stuff onto a contract, you better spell out the minutia of that. And what I mean by that is this. If you're going to require a deposit, spell it out on the contract how much it is and when it's expected to get the deposit and let me say this no gig that i ever contract is ever booked until the deposit is secured and i think generally don't wouldn't you say john a, a common deposit is 50 percent? yeah that's pretty standard and then generally the balance is paid upon completion of the service yep and again spell it out from the standpoint of like, look, this check or this payment needs to be paid to this person. This is the postal address for the deposit. And then upon services rendered at the end of the night, the check needs to be made payable to said person and then needs to be made at that night. Because I don't know, man, about you, but I like to be paid whether I am the contractor or the person who's like a subcontractor or just the person that's playing the gig. It's nice to be paid the night of. I'm, I'm blessed to have that set up. Um, there are some people that do the 15th and end of the month thing. I don't Every mind time that. I work for them, I, I usually play on the 16th. <laughs> I don't mind that if I work a bunch of gigs for them consistently. Right. <clears throat> but yeah, I'm kind of like you that if I'm just a, if I'm uh coming in and being a sub on something it's kind of nice to not have to wait yeah i've had to wait a while before have you ever done sessions where you've done it for like a, a label and they're 30 days out oh i i don't i think i blocked those out so 
I can't answer that question. I have never understood why that's the case. Why it's just, accepted. Yeah, that that just seems to be one of those things that it's primarily labels and or if it's a recording studio itself that hires you to come in and do that. But there's a few people here in town that I've done some stuff like that for. And they say, oh, well, it's just the way that we do our accounting and the way we pay out all of our bills every month and everything. I think it's just a way to hang on to some money for a little extra cash flow the majority of the time. Yeah. And, and, and oftentimes, uh, you know, you got to chase it down. Yeah. Which is a drag because sometimes that 30 days doesn't mean a whole lot. It might mean 45 days. That's true. And the, with the way the recording industry is going right now, cert, certain uh, labels may not, years. Yeah, may not be there in 45 days. Uh, John, before we leave this thing talking about price, one little side note I want to throw in is this, and I learned this the hard way. Um, I also spell out on a contract that if any overtime ends up getting booked, that this is the rate of overtime, which is always different. It's always a little more, right. right? That I always spell out the rate of the overtime. And on top of that, and this is the part that I want to bring to your attention, man, is that I always bring with me to the gig, I call it an overtime authorization form. And essentially what it is, is it uh, is a mini kind of, kind of a contract addendum that it spells out that on this date we contracted an extra 30 minutes of overtime the night of the gig. This is the overtime rate, and the responsible party it signs for that. Mm -hmm. Now, you're asking yourself, well, how did he find out the hard way? Tell you how I found out the hard way. There was a gig that was done years ago that I actually wasn't the contractor on, but I played this gig, and what ended up happening was the client requested 30 minutes of overtime. At the end of the night, after everything was done, because the contract was signed for a certain amount of money and the overtime was done on a handshake, what ended up happening was they disputed the overtime afterward, saying that the band had taken too long of a break and mm. that that 30 minutes of overtime ended up essentially being kind of making good for the long breaks. Man, you have to be careful too with uh, making sure you define the window. And it, for example, if you're supposed to play eight to 12, mm -hmm. define that in the contract, eight to 12, because if you start at 8.30 because of the proceedings going over or whatever, you know, some people are like, well, you know, you said four hours, play to 12.30. It's like, no, it doesn't work that way. If we're ready to go at eight o'clock and you're not, that's not our problem. And that can get really sticky, but you know, it's best to spell that out in negotiations. Like, look, I want you to understand we will give you four hours, a four hour gig, but it, it will be between eight and 12. Yeah. It, it, Anything uh, outside of that, we got to have, if it's, you want 30 minutes prior or an hour after, it's funny, man, how many times that clients don't understand it. They just think, oh, well, if it's a four-hour gig, it's four hours well, of this time. It doesn't 11. matter. You got to play till three. Yeah. And, like, no. It, and it doesn't happen that often, but, man, there are absolutely times when people that you have contracted on that gig might have something before and or after. Mm -hmm. And they are dependent on those clock times to be that. So, yeah, point well taken there, sir. You know another one that I learned the hard way on, John? Is this gig outside? Again, I wish we had a video uh, feed for this show. Yeah, you got to ask. Because especially if you live in a, uh, a climate like we have down here, there's a lot of people that like to uh, rush the seasons or push their luck on certain times for events. And so... You always have to ask if the gig is outside. And I am 100% adamant that the gig makes or breaks. It either gets booked or it doesn't. The band has to be covered. I don't care if you look at the forecast and it shows that there's no rain, snow, sleet, or hail coming for a month. It's got to be covered. 
There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. And I would encourage everyone here to get on that same mindset. And secondly, regardless of the covering, dear client, do you have an inclement weather plan? The answer has to be yes. You have to tell us what's going to happen. Because it's one of those things. Let's, let's take rain, for example. All right, let's say the gig's supposed to be from 7 to 10. All right, if it's raining during the day, you've got to let us know something ahead of time regarding the rain plan. Is Where is it going to be moved indoors? Because even if you're, you're covered, your guests, your audience, are not going to stand or sit outside in the rain. So you've got to have a viable rain plan or mm-hmm. a viable and climate weather plan. I think the other thing about the covered too is you end up with a lot of potential problems, even if it's not raining. Like if it's really hot and the sun isn't down, that can affect gear, you know, computers, iPads, mm-hmm. digital boards. I've had drum sets that are covered, you know, like dark black gloss covering it, bubbles up from the sun hitting it. A lot of issues like that. And then, and then you also have the, uh, just the idea that if some freak thing happened and it starts pouring rain, you're not covered for all that. You know, your PA gets fried, your mm-hmm. everything. So it's really not only a reasonable request, but there's just a lot of protection in that above and beyond, uh, you know, getting your hair wet. You know, John, the other thing that I would tell the listeners is if you have any pushback from any of the clients, two things you need to tell them. One, you do more gigs as a professional in a month than they will ever book in their lifetime, most likely. And that part two of that is, is that you have to trust us, the musicians. You have to trust the band because... Us knowing how the flow of gigs go and how different types of, of parties, private parties, corporate parties, whatever that you're booking, club gigs, whatever, you know how this stuff goes. And we really do honestly have your event's best interest in mind. Mm-hmm. Because if you have a turd of an event <laughs> that we're a part of and, and, and have a part of making it a turd. It, it reflects on us, no doubt. It absolutely does. Now, John, you mentioned a few minutes ago when we were talking about price, you were saying, you know, you don't want to agree to something and then all of a sudden find out that it's a thousand miles of travel. One of the first things you want to ask is the location of the gig. Yeah, it's vital for all negotiations. Absolutely. It can't even really start. You, no price quote can, can be brought into the equation until you have that. No, because you have to know if the gig is out of town and you agree to do this thing out of town. You have to make sure you're budgeting in a whole bunch of different things. You got to budget budget in, of course, travel costs, the mode of travel that you're going to take. Because there are certain things, man. If 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 we got a gig that gets booked in Seattle, you're not going to drive that. I'm not. Yeah, it's going to be a flight. You got to book in book a uh, book in and account for per diems. You got to pay folks. They got to eat. A lot of times you got to cover. You know, there's a extra day there that's just you know you can't just write off as not important to someone that's true compensation be, should be made for that hotel yeah if you get if you if you're in seattle and coming back you're burning the next day absolutely and oftentimes a day prior mm-hmm. if you do it right yep another thing you got to start talking about equipment and gear uh, there are certain gigs, the gigs that we love to book, where the only thing the band is scheduled to provide are either themselves or just themselves and backline. Now, those are really cool gigs when you've got another contractor, like a corporate thing, where they're bringing in all the PA, sometimes video, lighting. That's all good stuff. I'd say, man, of all the gigs that I've booked, probably 10 15% are I'm that. Not- yeah, those there used to be a lot more of that. I will say the one thing that from experience I am 
really leaning towards as far as even if PA is providing all that, I kind of like bringing the band board. If it's got, especially if it's got like saved monitor in your mixes, mixes, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's where we're at. Because, man, like I know with with my regular gig, twelve piece band sound check can be laborious and long and misery, sheer misery, you know, because it's just like. Whereas if, even if you're using that board just for monitors, which mm-hmm. is easy and any capable sound guy is going to be like, yeah, a, I don't have to set up the mix. B, I don't have to set up monitors, and more importantly, I don't have to have someone waving their hand and freaking out all night because you guys are self-contained in that sense. That's been my as much as I love provided PA, like I know when we use ICP and J Rabbits showing his brand new four trillion dollar <laughs> yeah. system, and then we sound like a million bucks. That's fantastic. I still hate the sound check. Yeah, it can be as long as a set, you yeah. know, on the gig. Um, John, to your point on that, I did a gig two weeks ago at a big, massive bumping club uh, downtown here mm-hmm. where that exact scenario happened, and, man, it made life easy, where we didn't bring any PA aside from the console that we used, and then we tapped into the club's console. Worked brilliantly. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. Especially for mixes, personal mixes. Something that I'm going to encourage everyone to do that's listening to this is for any group that you work with that you're trying to book, regardless of the fact of whether you're bringing PA or especially if you're going to use somebody else's PA, like through a sound company, have a graphic sound plot chart or stage plot chart, actually is what I wanted to say, stage plot chart that as you can send as a PDF to any sound company. Now, what I mean by that is this. I have a PDF that shows, like for example, it's like a five-piece band. It shows the actual stage setup of the band. It's got the drums in one place. It shows the drums there, the keyboards in one place, guitar in one place, vocal, bass in a place. And then beside each member, it shows the miking requirements and it shows the monitoring requirements as well as far as like, you know, this person's going to use a wired in-ear monitor. This person's going to need a wireless in-ear monitor, blah, blah, blah. If you can get that and send it to a company that's providing sound, they can have a lot of the work already done for you. So I think that's very important having a stage plot. Now, while we're talking about staging, is a stage provided? That's another big deal because take for example, John, if you're playing outside, you've got to have a stage. You can't set up on bare ground. Doesn't work out too well. More importantly, let me add this. Not only do you need to have stage, you need to have a level stage. You can set up on a gravel parking green. lot. <laughs> then you'd get shot by the groundskeeper. But It really is astounding how many times people will go, well, we want this gig outside. Is it okay if we just throw like some plywood down on the ground? <laughs> and the answer is no. It's not because you cannot play a drum set on bumpy ground you just you can't do it you just can't do it and and it's it's miserable also john have you ever had to play on any kind of a stage that the stage was was flat right but it wasn't level like the entire thing might be leaning to the east a little bit yeah and like when you set up you're kind of gravitationally leaning toward that direction it's miserable and everybody who's standing at night by the end of the night their backs all jacked up exactly it's not good so i mean i literally put into the contract level staging must be provided you know and then i also tell them that, look, here's the size of the stage as well. And if you're going to use a drum riser, the drum riser needs to be this size. So be incredibly specific when you're dealing with that. Uh, John, do you know off the top of your head, because I think this would be interesting, I'm going to mention it. If you are going to set up on a drum riser, what are your minimum riser requirements? Like feet by feet, do you know? Oh, Probably, you know, six by eight or five by seven, maybe I could get by. I don't have a big kit. 
Depth is a bigger issue. That absolutely always, is. That's always the problem. Yeah. Those four by eights don't work. I, I What I always tell everybody just to be safe is eight by eight. It's yeah. going to be a little big. It'll be a little big. But if you have somebody that's just clueless and not aware of it, go ahead and go on that larger side. Because something that you can do is after you get your, your drum set set up and it's on an eight by eight, sometimes... Guys will will put an amp up there right beside it, if especially if they're standing next to you, close to you, like a bassist or whatever. And that that kind of gives the client a little bit of bang for their buck, also. Yeah, that whole like like the four by eight. I mean, I have long legs now. Like with this new kick drum, is deeper. You know, like I I can't make that work. Yeah, it's just that's no fun. I'm not falling off the back of a stage mid song. Another thing, make sure that you have specific details about electrical requirements or electrical needs such as you need so many 20 amp outlets and you've got to have these outlets close to the stage incredibly important when you have that in when you have that in a contract. yeah especially if you're doing your pa and lights and everything you know john you're talking about times you know about clock times and stuff another thing that's important is it's very 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 important that you let them know up front that say for example let's say your gig is h12 and they're trying to cut it short or at least trying to cut it from a standpoint of budget wise to where they have the room that you're going to play in as short a time as possible they can't get the room at 7 30. they've got to have the room at a time long enough for you to load in comfortably sound check make sure you get all the bugs worked out and ready to go so i normally will Tell them that I need to have a room for a smaller group, say like a five-piece group. If the gig starts at seven, I like to have that room about two and a half hours before the event starts. That way I can get loaded in comfortably, set up, sound checked, and then be ready to go. And then have a few minutes of time in between that to go to the green room, have some food, relax for a minute, and talk about the specifics of the gig. I think that's incredibly important when you do that. Yep, I agree. Now, we're getting to a point, John, also where some of these last things that we talked about, things like the specifying load-in and sound check and specifying things like electrical needs, so a lot of that stuff I actually include on a separate rider. Okay. Okay? And, and as a matter of fact, these last few things that we're going to talk about, I think it's something that needs to be on the rider not necessarily on the contract because sometimes these riders get passed over to like venues and whatnot and they don't necessarily need to see the contract but they need to see what's specified in the rider right so while we're talking about that we're talking about venues and talking about different places that supply you with certain things i think it's really important also that when you find out what venue you're at if the client is not really aware of the ins and outs of the venue like the rooms the load in and stuff like that and especially if you're not aware of it if it's not a room you haven't played very often contact that venue directly go to their website call those people because you need to find out specific things like tell me about the room what's the size what's the load in like what's the parking like do you have elevators if it's on the 64th floor do you have a clear pathway at your loading dock for me to roll equipment up? And then another thing that I, it happens, man, I'd say probably every third or fourth gig, you better ask these venues, especially if it's a high-end venue, if they require liability insurance. Mm. Now, for anybody who doesn't know what that is, let me explain for a second. This insurance that they are requesting it doesn't protect you as the band member. Or, or I should say it doesn't directly protect you from a standpoint of like if somebody falls off the stage, then all of a sudden, you know, this liability insurance will pay for somebody's broken neck. You know, when fall. that's not what it is. What the liability insurance actually is, is it's liability in case you damage something inside of that venue. So, for example... Let's say that you're playing at the San Francisco Metropolitan Museum of Art. 
if you go by and knock down a sculpture that cost $500,000, how's that thing going to be paid for? So the majority of the time, these venues that require it require a $1 million policy. Now, you're probably going, well, that's it. I'm turning this show off right now. I'm not booking any gigs because I don't have enough money to pay for one of these. It's not that expensive, so don't, don't go nuts. There's a couple different ways that you can, you can actually get this insurance. If you are actively booking numerous gigs per year, like if you're booking 30 or 40 gigs a year or even more than that, you can buy a one-year policy just like you'd buy a homeowner's policy or whatnot. If you only need this insurance three times a year, you can actually buy it on an as-needed basis for certain clock hours. Date specific. Yeah. And how much are you talking about for the yearly versus the the I've never bought the yearly policy, so I cannot speak specifically on what that is, but I can tell you this. If you need a million dollar policy for a 24 hour period for a specific venue, it's about $125. Oh, that's worth it. Oh my gosh. It's not only worth it. Well, you might not have a choice. That's what I was going to say. Certain venues will require you to actually fax or email them the policy for that day. And so it's about 125 bucks. And like I said, it's one of those things that it's just the cost of doing business. John, do you remember when I talked about it earlier at the beginning? Make sure you reserve a little bit of cash, you know, in your pricing. There you go. There you go. Either that or sometimes I'll just have an understanding with a client. I'll go, well, look, hey, no, this venue that you're playing at, it's traditionally known to require from either you, the client, or from B, the band, some type of proof of insurance. If they do require that, I will buy it, but just know that I'm going to need you to remunerate an extra $125 or something like that. Plus, you got to cover the singer's valet parking. (laughs) I mean, we'll pay loading in the stinky loading dock, but you got to cover the singer's valet parking. I was just going to mention that. That's going to be in this long list of things to put on your rider. Diva ducats. (laughs) <laughs> well, when, while, while we're on the topic of parking, I'll just say this. I always request that everybody gets either free parking in whatever lot that they've got, or if it's a lot that they don't have control over, you either have to validate the parking for that for said number of vehicles. And again, be specific about that. Right. Be very specific about that. If you got five members and it's a local gig and all five people are coming separately, you gotta have five validations. Or if it's one of those things where they go, we don't validate or anything, again, budget that into your cost. And do not under budget that. John, let me let me run something by you, sir. Do you remember, and now this is three shows that we've talked something about this. You remember my infamous pots and pans gig? Said venue charges, are you ready for this? $40 to park. We're talking Manhattan-style parking. It's $40 for four hours plus. $40. Now, let's talk about a few other things regarding uh, the rider. Make sure you request some place to store your cases that's fairly close by. Last thing you want to do is get to a venue that you've already had to ride three elevators to get to, get everything set up, and they go, everything's got to go back on the truck. You know what happens. Yep. Or, Or even the same thing, they'll go, well, okay, yeah, we got a place for you to store them, but again, you got to get on an elevator and go four floors up. And then they end up locking the room. And you I gotta, still prefer that. Yeah, you got to run somebody down to unlock a room at the end of the night. I always say that you've got to have some place provided that's close by for storage. And, you know, if you want to kind of kind of give them some reasoning for that, aside from the convenience aspect, what you have to say also is like, look, there are certain things that are stored in these cases that... For emergency, we might have to have during the gig some extra cables, some extra things that if something goes bad, we need to be able to get to it within like a minute and a half, two minutes. Because if we have to stop the gig 
and then go back down to the truck or up four floors and get somebody to unlock a room might might take 15 20 minutes so it's very important that you have that close by now something i think that's you're going to do yourself and you're going to make your band members your contracted members love you is you need to be specific on some things that you ask for that are comfort items and let me tell you especially if you're playing a high dollar kind of a gig do not be afraid to ask for it because a lot of times well, I'll tell you, 100% of the time, if you don't ask for it, you're not going to get it. And two, also, sometimes when people are spending a lot of money on something, they just expect it to be there. Hey, I'm booking a premium group, therefore I'm going to treat these guys like kings, mm -hmm. right? But if you don't ask for it, you're not going to get it. One, ask for a green room and be specific that you want this green room to be private. Not only do you want to chill out and relax a little bit, but... 90% of the time, you got to change clothes, yep. right? So ask for a green room and ask for it to be private if possible with no other ven vendors involved. Next thing, on the rider, you need to be specific when you request for food. If you got folks in the band that are vegetarians, you better ask for a vegetarian plate. If you specifically go, look, we do not accept vendor box meals at traditionally have the sandwich or as we like to say the bandwich in there along with like some stale fruit and a you know a rock hard brownie you better go this band requires hot food with so many choices of protein so many choices of vegetable etc and then the other thing is this also be very specific when it comes to drinks i'm not a fella that puts on a contract or puts on a rider that you require a whole bunch of alcoholic drinks. I don't do that. I know that there are some groups that you and I both know that do do that. But what I'll tell you is this. Request, of course, water, soft drinks, juices, coffee and tea. Do that and be specific about these different things. Like, for example, if nobody... You know, nobody wants root beer. Don't put that down in there. But if everybody in the band drinks Sprite, you're going to want to have a few more Sprites than you're going to want to have Coca-Colas, right? If no one drinks tea but everybody drinks coffee, you don't have to put tea in, but you want to make sure you get coffee and then all the condiments that go along with it. But it's important that you put these things in there and make sure that you're specific about it. I always, something else I request also is water by the stage. I love it. John, would you work for me? You can't afford me. You liar. You liar. Oh, okay, this month you can. <laughs> well, that's about it, guys. This is one of those things, like I said, that it's, it's straight business, but it's a good thing to know. I learned from the best. I learned from the worst. <laughs> and it's kind of one of those things that it's good to have this little bit of information in your back pocket because it took me a long time to compile all this stuff, but it's, it's a good working thing to start from, and I haven't had anybody get just completely and totally offended from all this. So I'm keeping it. Yeah. My outline is the, this might be the first one I've kept. Moving onward and upward. Something we haven't done in a little while, but it's been getting rave reviews. John, are you ready? Ready. This one actually gives you more low-end torque and more high-end horsepower. That way you can go down the track at 350 miles per hour. Drummer's Weekly Groovecast Garage. Woohoo! Do you know how much I like doing that? Man, it makes <laughs> me think about like Dale Sr. <laughs> and I just get, you know... I get all worked up about that. Ernie Earnhardt. <laughs> John, I love the Drummer's Weekly Groovecast Garage, and so do the listeners. I think you have a jewel of a, of a garage uh, tip for us today. Well, thanks. Um, I restore and uh, a lot of drums. I restore a lot of drums that I get. You know, you'll get something. There's always, you know, oftentimes issues with vintage kits. And one of them that can be a real pain is rust. And it is not afraid to show its ugly head. Any Wire given brush, time. right? Wire brush. Is that where you're going with this? 
No, I have a, I have, I'm a lazy restorer and I've learned many little tricks, but, uh, one that I like now for, uh, light and, you know, even medium rust is a, a product called Evapo Rust. You can get it at car places like AutoZone, that kind of thing. This is a liquid? It's a liquid. And, uh, you, the, it, I, I've had really good luck with it. 24 hours in this. You have to have it in a sealed container. I buy like those sealed food containers. I got you. Little high end plastic. Mm -hmm. And, uh, because it, it, it can evaporate, I think, and lose its name. Yeah. Um, but you can reuse it if it's not, you know, too dirty and it's biodegradable. So you can literally flush it down your sink if you want. Mm -hmm. Um, there's not, it's not harmful in regards to the environment. No, that can you do that old gimmick like they do on the uh, like the infomercials where you just pour it in your hand and drink it? Uh, I I'm not the person to ask. Try it and get back to me. No thanks. <laughs> Evapo rust. Um, I I've gotten a lot of vintage stuff lately and really saved an unbelievable amount of hardware that can get real pricey if you get into vintage kits and you're like, oh, I need ten claws, man. You know. Bend over if it's eBay. <laughs> so um, that that's something worth trying. And I mean, it doesn't always, you know. There's there's certain things that are going to be if the chrome's gone, right? You yeah. might not. But if it if it's just looking like surface rust, this stuff is gold. Question. Yeah. All right. So is it something that you use straight, or do you have to mix it? How do you do it? I use it straight. Pour it right in the container. Yep. Does and it, it? Yeah. It, does it come in like a big old massive, like a like a laundry detergent style jug exactly. or something? Exactly. You can get it in a smaller, though. If you right. want to try it, you can get a small 10-ounce bottle or you can get a larger 28-ounce or something like that. Gotcha. So now walk me through this. Let's mm-hmm. just say that you got some claws you're talking right. about, tension rods, whatever, all right? You just take them, throw them in there. Nope. Nope. Go I, for it. I always do a Dawn bath. Or simple green bath, depending on the the type of dirt or grime on the on the chrome. There's some that that kind of weirdish white sticky grime. Uh, that stuff, um, simple green seems to really like to attack. And then if it's just a lot of dirt and you want to get all that off, you do a dawn bath, which I dilute a little bit, maybe fifty fifty. And let it sit for 24 hours, and it really can do wonders as far as just getting dirt and stuff off. Because once you use this evapo rust, there's going to be plenty of sediment just from the rust. Okay. You don't want a bunch of dirt in there either, especially because it's reusable. Gotcha. So, like for example, with that other stuff that you were talking about, either like the Dawn or the Simpler Green, on tension rods, you know, we always put either Vaseline or lithium grease. Does that get most of that off? Pretty good. Yeah. yeah. Then you throw it. You know what? You know what else Dawn is good for? Washing Tape dishes. Residue. No, no, I, I don't. No, that's manual labor. Let's not. Unless I'm making money, uh, I'm not going to do manual labor. Uh, that's what. I mean, dishwashers are for. So, so uh, the the other thing that's Dawn has been. I've had great luck with this, and my I just hate is. Cheap duct tape residue on symbols. Ugh, yeah. If you put symbols in a Dawn bath, man, it, it really eats that stuff up quick. And you have a lot of, it's, you can sit there, like, I don't have the greatest luck with uh, Goo Gone and stuff like that with that cheap, yeah, porous, uh, sticky residue. But this, but Dawn seems to really knock out to the point where maybe you then get a little Goo Gone and finish it off. I never thought of that. Yeah, this it, is a this is I, two for your money on. That uh, was kind of a garage. happy accident. Question: So mm-hmm. you have said rusty things. You you've gotten through the simply green bath or the dawn bath. Now they go into the evapo rust. Mm-hmm. How long do those things generally have to stay in there? I typically do twenty four on anything any yeah. soak. I don't do much longer than that. Right. It's really. I think you're getting into there's. If it's not going to get it clean in 24 hours, it's not getting it clean. And there's no reason to risk 
more problems by way of moisture. Gotcha. Now, one last question about this. Inquiring minds want to know, if you've got a large piece of hardware or Mm -hmm. a large drum component, let's say an 18-inch tom hoop, or better yet, how about this? How about an old-school 24-inch metal bass drum hoop? That it's got rust on it. How, what do you use, man, to to get that evapo rust uh, on? I those? I use my friends who might have another one. <laughs> uh, no, like like that. I've tried like coke and foil and had some luck. Okay, yeah. Um, you know, you, you, that that's man. Like some certain things, you're just not going to be able to soak because you don't have the thing to an 18 inch hoop. One thing you can do is take the the top of an unlined enduro case. Interesting, yeah. And if it's evaporust, you gotta get, I have plastic wrap I'll use for packing all that. I can get it sealed that way. Yeah. And you can also do, you know, those cases hold up to like paint stripper, like 16 inch hoops with paint on them. I've get, I've had that. Yeah. What are you gonna soak them in, you know? Or do I want to just spray it and start rubbing? No, I've, I've had some, I get some liquid paint remover and put it in there and the, the case top doesn't suffer at the end of that a right, good deal the, the only thing i was thinking i, th- I thought what you were going to go with is like with a 24 inch hoop i'd get a small kiddie pool <laughs> yeah <laughs> dump, dump a few bottles in there but then you, that gets pretty expensive man like you start buying that amount of of that stuff is it expensive um like the the larger bottle of evaporust is like 23 bucks but i guess you could get I, I could probably do like three kits worth of hardware with that. Okay. But to me, that's like, you know, usually about the third soak, it, it's pretty much saying crying uncle. Gotcha. Yeah. And then regarding, I know you said that it was biodegradable. Do you, does it have any like adverse issues from the standpoint, like if you get it on clothes, it's going to eat a hole through it or anything like that? Or? No, but you don't want to get it in your eyes and mouth. And yeah. You got to be careful. And also like when I rinse, I use heavier rubber gloves and just chemical just common, gloves yeah. yeah common sense stuff yeah you know i mean you could get away with dishwashing gloves with that stuff because it's not that hardcore but always protect your eyes keep keep anything you can out of your mouth by way of chemicals and then you know your hands buy some gloves are cheap and worth every penny that even when i'm rinsing stuff off you know like i'll go back the way i do the evaporus is i have two large sealable cartons have the evaporust in one. Then I'll have a heavy-duty calendar colander over here in the other. So I can dump that and then pull that out and all the parts are just, you know, drained. And then I use gloves to rinse everything. Just once, water water rinse. Yeah, and once I rinse it, then I'll spread out a towel and let it air dry like that. Don't just let it sit in a pile because some of that stuff's not going to dry too well. Spread it out like Take, take it in the bathtub, have a big towel there, lay everything out. Dale and Dale Jr. would be delighted with this DWG garage. Hot damn. That's good, man. Dude, I yeah. asked more questions than anybody in the audience would. That's good stuff. Well, that's important. Good. All right, folks. Well, that's going to do it for this week's episode and our triumphant return of the Drummer's Weekly Groovecast Garage. As usual, we love hearing from you. Go over to our website. We're at drummersweeklygroovecast.com. Social media is still active. You can find us at facebook.com forward slash drummersweeklygroovecast or twitter, twitter.com forward slash dwgroovecast or at dwgroovecast. We've still got the old fledgling Instagram account that we got to get something happening on there john i think you're going to post a bunch of things for sale on there i hope do something get some kind of we'll get some kind of love going on instagram yeah and as always you can always email us you can either email us from our website at our contact form or old school at gmail we are drummers weekly groovecast at gmail.com that's it for this week buddy we're going to contract some gigs make a little money Got to do something in February, man. I know it. I got I got a gig I'm contracting in February. Right on. Oh, well, you know, that's something that we could talk about. Sure, we'll do that. There's a lot of nuts and bolts to that one. All right, that sounds good. 
All right, folks, subscribe to us. We're available on iTunes, Google Play, Podcast, Stitcher, anywhere you access your favorite podcast. New shows available every Monday, including the infamous Accountability Thursday, every first and third Thursdays of the month. All right, we will what? see you. What? Th- huh? what was that? What is that? It has to do with uh, putting evaporust on a practice pad. Oh, God, I don't need to watch that. Watch your chops evaporate. They did. <laughs> All right, we'll see you next Monday. Bye-bye. Later. Thank mm-hmm. you.